Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. It's been a while due to this ongoing global pandemic, but this week the kindergartens finally reopened, so I've been able to record another episode. As you might remember from last time, the Great Eden Army arrived in Britain in the year 865 and started to conquer the various Anglo-Saxon petty kingdoms. East Anglia, Northumbria and Mercia fell like bowling pins. Puppet rulers were installed where the Vikings didn't take direct control. In parallel with further expansion, Scandinavians started to settle the, these new conquered lands and set up farming communities with Scandinavian immigrants. In the spring of 878, the Vikings seemed set to crush Wessex as well, the last independent Anglo-Saxon kingdom. But King Alfred managed to gather an army and attack Guthrum at Eddington. The Vikings were defeated and retreated to Chippenham, where King Alfred laid siege to the castle and eventually forced them to surrender. Guthrum was forced to be baptized a Christian, and none other than King Alfred himself served as his godfather. That must have been just a little humiliating. But at least it led to the treaty between Wessex and the Vikings, where the Scandinavian control over a large chunk of Britain was recognized by the last standing Anglo-Saxon monarch. And that might have been worth a little sprinkling of water and a few prayers. Today, we'll take a closer look at what things looked like in that part of Anglo-Saxon Britain that was under Scandinavian control. For almost a hundred years, a large part of the middle bit of Britain was ruled by Scandinavians and by their laws. Not only a large number of Vikings, but also Scandinavian settlers flocked to this region where the prospects for convenient raiding were great and the climate was more suited for farming than anywhere east of the North Sea. This century of Scandinavian control and settlement has left a mark on northeastern England that is still readily detectable for anyone who's looking for the signs. Episode 7 The Dane Law. First of all, what was the Dane Law? Was it a country? A Scandinavian state set up on English soil? Well, yes and no. But mostly no. The Treaty of Alfred and Guthrum establishing the Dane Law is one of the few surviving written texts from King Alfred's reign. It formalized the boundaries between Wessex and the Scandinavian held territory that we know today as the Dane Law. Even though the term Dane Law doesn't appear in the treaty itself. In fact, the term itself was most likely not used to describe a geographic area until the 11th century. The Dane Law covered roughly the land to the north of a line drawn between London and Chester, excluding the portion of Northumbria to the east of the Pennines. And if you're a little unsure of the exact location of Britain's minor mountain ranges, you can find a map posted in the notes to this episode and on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. 545 towns became particularly important to the Scandinavians. Leicester, Nottingham, Derby, Stamford and Lincoln, broadly delineating the area now called the East Midlands. These strongholds became known as the Five Boroughs. Unlike the treaty between Guthrum and Alfred, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle does use the term Danelaw. In the Chronicle, it's used as a name given to the part of Britain in which the population lived according to the laws of the Danes. In that sense, Dane law contrasts to West Saxon law and Mercian law. This recognition of Scandinavian political power and legal authority later morphed into a geopolitical designation for the area where this law was enforced. 
So the Dane law wasn't a state, but rather a legal concept or a legal province where Scandinavian law was in effect within what the Anglo-Saxons still considered their land. Guthrum's conversion and Alfred being his godfather makes him Alfred's vassal in a symbolic but nonetheless very important sort of way. Another thing that made it easy for the Anglo-Saxons to see the Dane law as a part of their land was the fact that many Anglo-Saxons stayed in the area controlled by the Scandinavians. In fact, they were the majority of the population there, despite considerable Scandinavian immigration and settlement. That means that in the period of roughly 70 years, that is one lifetime, albeit longer than the average lifetime in those days, but still well within the realm of the possible, the Vikings went from the first appearance and carrying out isolated raids to being the masters of a large chunk of Britain. Only in the south and west the West Saxons were still in control, and the Scots in the north. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to call this a dramatic change. This means that some Anglo-Saxons had, in their lifetimes, seen the Vikings appear for the first time and conquer almost all of their land. So, in a nutshell, the Dane law was a part of Anglo-Saxon Britain where Scandinavian law was enforced from the year 865. But it doesn't mean that the law enforced there was identical to the law in Denmark, or that all the Scandinavians who invaded and settled there came from Denmark. It just means that the author behind the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle didn't bother to differentiate between different Scandinavians. They were all Danes to him. Archaeological evidence clearly indicates that the Scandinavians in the Dane law did not all stem from the same place. But they didn't come from all of Scandinavia either. The archaeological finds, artwork and jewellery for instance, suggests southern and not eastern Scandinavia. That would mean mainly Norwegian and Danish, but not Swedish immigration. In addition, it doesn't necessarily mean that the law practiced in the Dane law was identical to the law in the Kingdom of Denmark. In fact, Guthrum's and Alfred's deal formalizing the existence of the Dane law predates the establishment of the centralized Kingdom of Denmark. The first historically verifiable person whose scholars generally accept to have been king of all of Denmark was Gorm the Old, and he acceded to the throne in the first half of the 10th century. That is more than 70 years later than the establishment of the Dane law. Furthermore, we shouldn't make the mistake of assuming that there necessarily was a unified political leadership covering the whole area of the Dane law. In fact, more than a unified political entity, the Dane law can be seen as an extension of the zone of Scandinavian civilization into the British Isles, especially in terms of custom and legal procedures. The treaty between Guthrum and Alfred was supposed to establish peace and order in Britain, but the West Saxon king had learned from his previous mistakes. The Vikings would never again catch him by surprise, as they had done on that near-fatal Christmas in Chippenham. So despite the peace deal, Alfred started to reorganize the defense of his kingdom. He set up a system of fortified towns known as burrs. There were enough of these burrs spread out all across his kingdom that no one lived further away than 24 kilometers from the nearest one. That meant that the civilian population could seek refuge uh, if and when the Vikings would attack again. The burrs were also interconnected with a network of military roads known as the Heer Paths, enabling Alfred's troops to move swiftly to strike at the enemy. The troops were also affected by the reforms. In the past, every free man in Wessex could be called upon to protect the realm in times of trouble, 
but this could be a time-consuming way to muster an army, ill-suited to handle Viking hit-and-run raids, where the attackers usually were long gone before the defense had a chance to get organized properly. So an important part of Alfred's reforms was to create a standing army that could react rapidly to attacks. To maintain the burst, as well as the standing army, Alfred set up a system of taxation and conscription. Historians have calculated that perhaps as much as a fifth of the adult male population of Wessex, approximately 27,000 men, would have been mobilized. Please take these figures with a grain of salt or two. But there is no doubt that the reforms constituted a considerable beefing up of the West Saxon defensive potential. And the reforms seem to have been successful. They drastically limited the damage that the Vikings could inflict on Wessex with their raids. And throughout the 890s, there was a number of attempts by Viking fleets of various sizes to attack Wessex, but to a great part due to Alfred's reforms, they were largely unsuccessful and eventually stopped trying. Instead, the Scandinavians focused their attention primarily on territories under their control in East Anglia and Northumbria. These lands were settled by a large number of Scandinavians, both former Viking warriors and newcomers from Scandinavia who arrived only after the establishment of the Danelaw. It's difficult to assess exactly how many Scandinavians settled in the Danelaw. A common way to calculate population would be to analyze archaeological remains, looking at how many settlements or houses were Scandinavian in design and structure, and how many were Anglo-Saxon, for instance. The problem here is that the archaeologists haven't really found any settlements that could be said to be Scandinavian with 100% certainty. It seems that Scandinavian settlers adopted local building styles and techniques possibly because they were better suited to the English climate or because they hired local Anglo-Saxons to build their houses. But we do have other archaeological indications of Scandinavian settlement in the Danelaw. Burial sites, for instance. Archaeologists have found a number of graves assumed to be Scandinavian based primarily on two major clues. First of all, cremation, a big no-no in Catholic Anglo-Saxon culture, and grave goods, a custom also no longer practiced among the Christian Anglo-Saxons in the 9th century. There aren't so many of these graves though, but this doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't many immigrants. It might just as well indicate that the Scandinavians acculturated fast and adopted Anglo-Saxon burial practices. What we do have in spades is silver finds and other artifacts of clear Scandinavian influence. Some of the silver objects are quite clearly pagan also, such as Thor's hammers. There are also examples of sculpture in the north of the Danelaw that's Christian, but with Scandinavian mythical elements integrated into the decorations. Something that does indicate a large-scale Scandinavian immigration is that the names of many villages and towns throughout modern-day England are of distinctly Scandinavian origin. For instance, Aldeby, Lindholm, Derby, Langtoft, Grimsby and Helsington, to name but a few. There are more than 600 English place names ending with B, and more than 100 ending with Toft. The language the Scandinavian settlers spoke is known to us as Old Norse. It was related to Old English, and it was probably not too difficult to learn one if you spoke the other. Remember that this was before the Norman conquest of Britain that brought with it the large number of words of Latin and Romance origins that have inundated the English vocabulary. The Scandinavian newcomers eventually abandoned the language of their ancestors and adopted English, 
but the cultural influence of the Scandinavians is evident also in the many loanwords from Old Norse that still exist in the English language today. For instance, anger, bleak, die, gang, keel, knife, reindeer, rotten, skull, thrust and ugly are all words the Vikings introduced to Britain. But not all of the influence from Old Norse is so stereotypically Vikingy. The following words are also of Old Norse origin. Cake, glitter, guest, husband, stake and window. And of course there are plenty more. But this isn't a show on linguistics, but rather history. So let's move on. If we move on to look at laws and the way society was structured in the Dane law, it seems like the Scandinavian settlers retained some of the relative freedom that they had enjoyed back home in Scandinavia. Under the Dane law, between 30 and 50% of the population in the countryside had the legal status of Sokman, occupying an intermediate position between the free tenants and the bond tenants, in that they owned and paid taxes on their land themselves. They could also buy and sell their lands as they saw fit. This tended to provide more autonomy for these peasants. Many scholars, and not all of them Scandinavians, mind you, claim that due to the Scandinavian legal influence, the Dane law became an area where the peasantry enjoyed more freedom than in the rest of Anglo-Saxon England. The Scandinavians also brought with them the tradition of the thing, or the assembly of free men that would come together to pass legislation and judge legal cases. One of these assemblies met at Thingho, in what's today the Sherwood Forest in Nottinghamshire. The name is derived from the Old Norse Thinghaugur, meaning assembly mound or assembly hill. We'll talk more about the thing as a concept and how the Viking Age Scandinavians passed laws and settled disputes in a future episode when we discuss the most famous of all the ancient Scandinavian things, the Althing in Iceland. The establishment of the Danelaw also had an economic impact, primarily on the territory under Scandinavian control obviously, but by no means exclusively. Through the Danelaw, Anglo-Saxon England became connected to the Viking trade network that spanned all of Europe and beyond. Trading towns popped up all over the Danelaw in a way that didn't happen in Wessex, that is Anglo-Saxon controlled Britain at the same time. Archaeological evidence suggests that this trade was quite lucrative. Archaeologists have found lots of silver from this period. Still to this day, archaeologists and even private citizens that are out metal detecting in England in what used to be the Danelaw, find silver objects and hoards hidden by Scandinavians. The Vikings were loaded. An interesting aspect of Scandinavian economic life at this time was that their preferred currency doesn't seem to have been coins, but rather bouillon or ingots, which basically is a stick of pure silver instead of a coin that may or may not have been made of a debased metal. The Scandinavians would set the price of their goods in in the weight of a precious metal, silver most often. The buyer would then take out a piece of silver, chop off a chunk, weigh it and pay with it. That silver could be bouillon, but it could also be coins. They didn't care in which shape the silver came, as long as it was silver. The metal weight was the only thing that really mattered, not the design or the image on the coin. If the seller didn't know or trust you, He'd typically test the silver by pecking it to make sure that it was pure. As a consequence, 
Coins from many different countries were used, even Arab coins from Central Asia and the Middle East brought to Britain by Viking merchants. The identity of those who had minted the coins didn't matter, only the purity of the metal they had used and the weight of it were of any importance. This doesn't mean that they didn't mint coins at all in the Danelaw, they did, and it seems that in urban areas, like the various trading towns, people more often used locally minted Danelaw coins than bullion. But there was flexibility, and the two systems, bullion and coin, worked in parallel in many places. Interestingly enough, we have very little evidence of large-scale conflict between the Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavian settlers in the Danelaw. But the law stipulation of a high blood price for killing each other at least hints at the possibility that violence was anticipated and the authorities tried to stave it off with harsh punishments. A way to end blood feuds would be to demand a sufficiently high blood price for the killing. That way, killings would be contained one-offs and not descend into large-scale vendettas or even sectarian violence. And one can assume that this could easily have been the, the possibility with Anglo-Saxons and Scandinavians living side by side in the Danelaw. Tension between the two groups wouldn't have been surprising, considering the circumstances. At the same time, I feel duty-bound to point out the old truth that if there are laws against something, this something was a problem that needed to be handled somehow. I mean, there's a reason by why very few places have laws against letting your cows fly in the restricted airspace over airports. It's just not a problem that legislators feel that they need to waste time and resources on. So if sectarian violence hadn't been a thing in the Dane law, there wouldn't have been uh, any reason to legislate against it. And even though we don't have that much remaining evidence of aggression between Anglo-Saxons and Scandinavians within the Danelaw, there was plenty of it coming from south of the border, from Wessex. The establishment of the Danelaw might have given the Scandinavians the right to follow their own laws and mint their own coins, but the land was still, at least in the mind of the Anglo-Saxons, a part of their kingdom. There was a cold war between Scandinavians and Anglo-Saxons that occasionally flared up into a rather hot conflict. In fairness, though, the Vikings hadn't turned into pacifists overnight either, and they continued to raid Wessex despite the treaty between them and the West Saxon king. Their ultimate goal might very well have been to eventually conquer Wessex as well and take over the whole island, but following King Alfred's reforms, the Viking aggression just wasn't as successful as it had once been. After withdrawing from Wessex and signing his treaty with King Alfred, Guthrum settled in East Anglia, where he reigned as king until his death in the year 890. King Alfred outlived him by nine years and died in 899. His son, Edward, later known as Edward the Elder, succeeded him as king. Edward's father had secured the survival of Wessex as an independent Anglo-Saxon kingdom in the face of Viking expansion, and Edward decided that it was about time to try to push the Scandinavians back as much as possible. Together with his sister, Ethelfled, who was the Lady of the Mercians, Edward set out to attack the Danelaw, and in the year 909, Edward's and Ethelfled's forces launched an attack on Lindsay, deep in Scandinavian territory. There, they managed to capture the relics of St. Oswald of Northumbria from the heathen Vikings. In retaliation, various petty kings of the Danelaw joined together in a fleet that attacked Mercia. At first, the Viking raiders were successful, but on their way back home they were trapped by a combined army of West Saxon and Mercian forces. 
The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, perhaps not the most objective of sources, gleefully recounts that the Vikings were caught and defeated at the Battle of Wensfield, and many thousands of the Vikings fell, including two of their kings. The following years saw a slow but steady Viking retreat as the West Saxons and Mercians continued to attack. In the year 917, Ethelfled took the borough of Derby, and the following year Leicester submitted to her rule as well. York itself might have fallen to her if she hadn't died before she had a chance to take the city. After her death, her brother Edward succeeded her, joining Wessex and Mercia under his own rule. This united the Anglo-Saxons permanently against uh, the Scandinavians, increasing their strength and facilitating further attacks on the Danelaw. Edward lived for another six years and was succeeded by his son Ethelstan in the year 924. At that point, the West Saxons had captured the entire island south of Northumbria. The Scandinavians only controlled Northumbria itself, and the jewel in the crown was the city of York, the second largest in the land after London. King Ethelstan was eager to conquer the last bit of Scandinavian-controlled Britain in order to fulfill his grandfather Alfred's dream of a united Anglo-Saxon kingdom. And soon enough, the Scandinavians and the Danelaw got a taste of Ethelstan's ambitions. Throughout the 920s and 930s, Ethelstan attacked everything and everyone north of the border of his kingdom. 927 was a particularly successful year for Edward, and he defeated the Scandinavians at York, King Constantine of Scotland and King Owen of Strathclyde. After yet another successful campaign up north in 934, Ethelstan demanded that all other kings in Britain yield to his rule and declare their loyalty and obedience to him. At this point, the others, that is Constantine, Owen and the Scandinavians, had just about had it with Ethelstan. Even though they would have been uh, rivals and enemies on any regular day, they decided to put their differences aside in order to teach the Anglo-Saxon king a lesson. In the year 937, they united under the leadership of Olaf, the Viking king of Dublin, in an attempt to get rid of the Anglo-Saxon threat once and for all. It's actually kind of ironic that Constantine allied himself with the Vikings, since he had fought ferociously and successfully against invasion forces from the Hibernian Norse, not least from Dublin. But after Ethelstan's latest incursion into Scotland, when he had gone further north than any Anglo-Saxon king had gone before, a Scandinavian-controlled Northumbria all of a sudden seemed like an excellent idea to Constantine. A strong Scandinavian-held York would act as a buffer against further West Saxon aggression and ambition. So in August 937, Olaf sailed from Dublin with his army to join forces with Constantine and Owen. They were gearing up for what was going to be one of the most important battles in Anglo-Saxon history, the Battle of Brunanburh. And the fact that I call it one of the most important battles in Anglo-Saxon history kind of gives the ending away. It would not end well for the Northern Coalition. For historians, this momentous battle is frustrating because we know so little about it. There's plenty of myth and propaganda, smoke and mirrors, but very few hard, verifiable facts. The main source of information about the Battle of Brunnenberg is the so-called praise poem in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Once again, not necessarily the most trustworthy of sources. Some of the other sources are, for instance, William of Malmesbury and the Icelandic Ale Saga, and uh, they can't really be trusted either. 
We don't even know for sure where this, the most important battle in the history of England, with the possible exception of Hastings in 1066, took place. To begin with, there's actually no place called Brunenburg anywhere in Britain, and no obvious candidates for the location either. That hasn't stopped people from speculating, obviously, and dozens of places have been suggested. Among these, there are a handful of more likely candidates. What we can do is play the game of elimination. It most definitely wasn't in Wessex, and probably not in Scotland either, which still lives as with a hefty chunk of the middle and north bit of present-day England. The battle was most definitely joined close to water. If it wasn't directly on a beach, it was most likely at least sea or waterway adjacent, since the Vikings arrived to the battle on their ships. It's also more likely to have been on the west coast, since that would have been much more convenient and natural for the Vikings coming over from Dublin. But we don't know for certain. Maybe they sailed around Scotland to some point on the east coast. A recent theory places the battle close to Liverpool on the Wirral Peninsula, between the rivers Mercy and Dee. Not only does this spot fit the description of the geographical demands of the battlefield, but archaeologists also claim to have found remains from an early medieval battle there. I've posted a link on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page where you can read more about it. Wherever the battlefield was, Ethelstan, his brother Edmund, and the combined Anglo-Saxon army from Wessex and Mercia arrived at it in the late summer to take on the uneasy alliance of Scots and Scandinavians. The battle lasted all day, and in the end, the Scottish and Scandinavian forces were defeated. As unreliable as the sources are, no one calls into question that the battle was an unmitigated disaster for the Viking-led alliance. As soon as it was over, Olaf got back on his ship and sailed back to Dublin with the remains of his army. Constantine escaped back to cross the border to Scotland. Owen's fate is unknown, but if he left the battlefield alive that evening, he can hardly have been in a good mood. Among the casualties were five petty kings and seven earls from Olaf's army. The Danelaw had been dealt its death blow, and even though it would linger on for a few more years, it would never really recover. Most of its lands were now ruled by Anglo-Saxons, whose loyalty was to the Anglo-Saxon king, not to Scandinavian law. The Battle of Brunenburg was called the Great Battle up until the Battle of Hastings in 1066, and sometimes even later than that. It was the battle that was said to have established England. So in a way, that means that without the Vikings, there would never have been any England. The Vikings created England by crushing the various petty kingdoms in Britain. Wessex was the only kingdom that survived, and when they triumphed over the Vikings, their Anglo-Saxon competition was already crushed and gone. Furthermore, the struggle against the Scandinavians and the Danelaw helped unite the Anglo-Saxons and identify as one people fighting foreign invaders. The Battle of Brunenburg could also be described as the English version of the Battle of Clontarf. It occupies the same central place in the national myth about the establishment of the nation, describing the noble Christians fighting for freedom and triumphing over the wicked Viking invaders. But even though the Battle of Brunenburg heralded the beginning of the end for the Danelaw, it wasn't over quite yet. Ethelstan died already two years after the battle, in October 939, and, as I mentioned briefly in episode 4, Kings of Dublin, Olaf became King of Northumbria in the same year. Under Olaf's renewed leadership, 
the Vikings took to the offensive once again. They reconquered York and the five boroughs, and had they been able to hang on to them, which, spoiler alert, they didn't, then the Battle of Brunenburg would have been forgotten today as a temporary hiccup in the era of Scandinavian rule in England. In fact, Ethelstan's successor, his brother Edmund, only managed to take it back because Olaf died in 942. And there's a lesson there somewhere about how vulnerable and dependent on strong charismatic leaders Viking Age societies, both Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian, were in order not to fall apart. Legitimate power was so intimately bound up in the person of the king that when he died it didn't take much pressure, internal or external, for the kingdom he left behind to lose its ability to grow and flourish, to defend itself and just generally to function. After all, this was a time long before stable bureaucracy and the rule of law would really take root in northwestern Europe. Even though the English eventually were successful and gobbled up the Danelaw piece by piece, most of the Scandinavians living there remained and assimilated into the local population. This continued presence of Scandinavians was a constant source for concern, especially as long as new invasion attempts occurred, and we'll talk more about that in future episodes. Next time, we'll linger in Scandinavian-controlled Northumbria and talk more about York, the most important of all the Viking towns in Britain. But next time is unfortunately not going to be very soon. Even though I just resumed publishing episodes, thanks to the fact that the COVID-19 situation seems to be more or less under control, at least for now, this will be the last episode for a while. I am sorry to take another break so soon after returning to podcasting, but circumstances forced my hand. But at least they are happy circumstances. We're having another child, and I'll be busy adjusting to that situation for the next few weeks. I hope to be back with a brand new episode in the middle of July or so. And I hope you'll join me then. Mm-hmm.